Welcome to another Griffith University podcast. All right, we might get started, everyone. Thanks very much for coming along today. Now, we've got a um, now thanks very much to the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade. I can't see you. Jack. Thank you, Jack. Uh, and thank you, Deep. <laughs> thank you uh, for uh, inviting Harsh over to Australia. He's been doing the rounds, talking at various, various different places about uh, Indian foreign policy in the age of. Modi. Um, now, for those of you who don't know him and don't know his work, uh, Arsh Pant is the Director uh, of Studies and Head of the Strategic Studies Program at the Observer Research Foundation, which is one of the kind of premier research uh, institutions in Delhi. Uh, he's also a professor at uh, King's College London, and uh, he's a non-resident fellow uh, with uh, CSIS in Washington as well. Um, Harsh is extremely prolific, uh, and I have two of his books here, so this is the, the, the latest book about uh, Indian foreign policy in the Modi era. He's very kind enough to ask me to write a chapter for, for this book, which came out last year, is that right, on new directions in Indian foreign policy, and there are a multitude of, of others as well, and you write regularly for the newspapers in India and abroad, uh, and a whole number of uh, academic articles as well, which sort of recent thing in international affairs. Uh, and so on. So, um, incredibly prolific uh, and authoritative writer on Indian foreign policy. Uh, today, we're obviously only a few weeks away from the Indian election. On 23rd of May 2019, the results came out, and Narendra Modi and his BJP, the National Democratic Alliance, was re-elected with an enhanced majority, somewhat against expectations, I think. Uh, and, uh, and then we saw, again, in that characteristic Modi way, the great shock Surprise! He brought back the Foreign Secretary, former head of the Ministry of External Affairs, as the Foreign Minister. So S. Jaishankar is coming as Foreign Minister, which took a lot of us, I think, by surprise, uh, and has rejigged his, his cabinet and so on. So I think um, Harsh is going to talk a little bit about what Modi has done, what he's doing, and, and what he's going to do. Over to you. Uh, thank you. And again, uh, thank you, uh, Ian and Caitlin, for having me here in the, in the Asia Centre, Asia Institute. Uh, I have uh, been, as, as Ian said, I've been uh, in Australia as part of uh, as part of DFAT's very generous program. I have uh, been engaging with a range of scholars, policymakers on, on Australian foreign policy, Asia Pacific, Indo-Pacific uh, security issues, uh, and it has been uh, an interesting engagement for for a, for a range of issues. But I think uh, the uh, uh, the sense increasingly is that India and Australia uh, seem to be looking at the regional uh, security, regional framework through very similar lenses. It's, it's not convergent, uh, fully convergent yet, but I think the, um, the issues that we are worried about, uh, the, uh, the aspects of foreign policy and security policy that, that uh, you know, we are concerned about are relatively, uh, frames, our frames are relatively similar. So I think that's, uh, uh, that's an, uh, you know, India-Australia relationship has been evolving quite rapidly over the last few years, and that is one of the, one of the central aspects of, uh, of central takeaways of my uh, visit this week here. But uh, I mean, I think uh, you know, it, I would uh, sort of um, I will talk of Indian foreign policy in the era of Modi uh, uh, <coughs> by giving you a few of the uh, pointers in terms of how I see some of the sort of central. Narratives or central idioms that that, that uh, shape his foreign policy, uh, but 
but as Ian pointed out, I, I think um, you know, it is important uh, in some ways to also understand um, the fundamental sources of this, of this shift, of this change that, that are happening. Uh, Indian foreign policy and, and, and I think foreign policies generally uh, tend not to be, you know, uh, not to change very, very uh, categorically with every change in administrations. There are fundamental realities of foreign policy. Uh, you know, uh, foreign uh, of, of, for nations global engagement that remain uh, permanent that that are not transitory so in that sense um, you cannot really argue that any any one individual can radically alter a foreign policy but what has been interesting in Modi's case um, is that there has been a lot of debate about his foreign policy from the very first few months that he assumed office in 2014 so there is a vigorous debate even in the academia and, and Ian himself is coming out with a book uh, um, uh, on, on, on Modi and his foreign policy, whether how whether it has been transformative or whether it has been just uh, about style and 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 sort of more about uh, his, his Modi's personality being reflected in Modi's overtures to the global uh, to the world, and I think that's an interesting debate. I, for example, have I mean I've, I've been a student of Indian foreign policy now for almost two and a half decades. Uh, I have not seen that kind of an engagement with uh, with a foreign with any uh, leader's foreign policy in the past. I mean, uh, maybe it was during Indira Gandhi's time, uh, but, uh, and, and, but I, I, don't, I have not seen that that kind of a debate. And it it, it is interesting. It's not simply that uh, that you know that you have uh, commentariat reacting to it. It is also the scholars. So I think uh, I, I remember from the very uh, from the first uh, I think. He came to office in 2014, and by 2015, there were special issues of serious academic journals that were coming out uh, as to what is Modi doing with foreign policy. Is it going to be transformative, or has, it, has, he, has he shifted the fundamentals, or is it all about style, you know, the fact that he likes to be a bit of a showman, the fact that he likes to engage with diaspora, that, 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 you know, that the fact that he likes to do big events when he travels abroad. So I think this, this has been an interesting debate from various vantage points. and. Uh, and uh, as, a, as, a, as scholars, as students of Indian foreign policy, you tend to take uh, you know a, a sort of a more longer, you know, sort of longish uh, uh, approach to these questions. But I think it's, it has been impossible to divorce yourself from that debate because academia also got involved in, in this, and, and we continue to have that debate well, uh, with, with, a, with a range of books, with a range of journal articles on this, uh, which have been trying to understand or explore uh, Modi's version of foreign policy. Uh, my, uh, I mean, in in some ways, uh, Modi, as as Ian pointed out, Modi has come back with a very decisive mandate, a mandate that many uh, thought was impossible. Almost, in fact, when he was when he came to power in 2014, people thought that was the peak, um, that uh, it's it's going to it's going to be impossible to replicate that achievement. Uh, but he has come back to power with a with a mandate that is much more uh, expansive, that is uh, much more wide ranging, that is that cuts across various societal hierarchies, um, that cuts across various regional um, uh, sort of uh, fault lines, uh, and in that sense, he has emerged uh, as a leader, um, which I think um, uh, which has a certain degree of acceptance. Uh, across India, uh, across India's regional landscape. If you look, uh, you know, it, it, there was a, there was a time when BJP, his party, Bharatiya Janata Party, was considered to be a cow belt party, the Hindu heartland party. Uh, that it it has it, it was growing, but it was the base was limited. It was in the in, in the central and north India. Uh, I think what Modi has incredibly done is to. Um, to uh, make BJP acceptable with all the problems, and that is what is interesting. 
uh, that you know it, it is uh, in some ways a Hindu nationalist party. It has certain uh, certain narratives which are not acceptable. Uh, in you know there is a debate, for example, on, on beef. There is a debate on cow. I mean, all that you know more cultural issues that are not acceptable to a large part of the country. But Modi himself has appealed in various ways, uh, even in areas where, um, uh, for example, these issues would rankle. So northeast is a very good example where uh, BJP has expanded enormously. Uh, and so I think what we are looking at is a very different uh, is, a, is, a, is a very different texture of Indian politics that is now emerging. And so uh, when you know when we when we talk of Modi's foreign policy, uh, I think it is. Uh, I, I, I would I would argue that it is important to understand Modi uh, in a sort of a larger socio-political context, not simply Modi uh, as an individual who has certain, uh, you know, uh, certain ideas about where he wants to position India, which is important, but also what he represents uh, and, and what the rise of BJP at this particular political moment in India's history represents. And I think that is perhaps going to be key in, in how uh, some of these issues are going to be um, interpreted and, and reflected. Uh, so as I said, you know, it's for for a nation, for a country, um, it is always uh, you know the the variables that define in, uh, its foreign policy um, uh, tend to be more uh, you know static. So you you'll have geography, history, culture, all of these variables that don't change very radically. And I think uh, I would sort of argue that there are a range of issues that I think before we we end up interpreting Modi's foreign policy to be to be cognizant of some of these issues. Uh, some of the broader sources of this change. Uh, so Indian foreign policy has been undergoing uh, a transformation ever since the end of the Cold War. So the, the structural change that happened with the end of the Cold War, we have seen that evolution happening. So uh, I think what we are now witnessing is a post-post-Cold War phase where uh, we are still trying to grapple with some of the consequences of, what, what, of, the, changing, of the rapidly changing uh, international environment. And, and I think in some ways the, big, the biggest issue that India, Indian foreign policy structurally is grappling with is, is the rise of China. So what, what is happening at the, at the level of uh, structural balance of power is I think fundamentally altering India's foreign policy or has the potential to fundamentally alter India's foreign policy. And that has been a consistent uh, sort of frame since the 1990s that as India started rising, uh, its ambitions started expanding. And uh, it, it was rising at a time when, uh, when you also had the rise of China in, in, in Asia, in Asia Pacific, in Indo Pacific, and so the structural realities are quite distinct uh, compared to say a decade back. Uh, and of course, the other reality uh, associated with this is uh, is a debate on America. So a lot of the assumptions that I think uh, the regional states took for granted, uh, as far as the American presence in the region was concerned, are being questioned. Uh, and India is, is also uh, grappling with the assessment that is Mr. Trump uh, a temporary phenomena or is he, does he represent something more fundamental in, in, in American politics uh, in terms of domestic politics, the, the consensus in, in American domestic politics about the kind of global engagement America is going to have uh, in the coming years. And therefore that assessment will have, will have great bearing on how India frames its response uh, to the international environment. Uh, similarly, you know, if you look at the, the shift in, uh, in recent years on the, on the debate on economic globalization, again, uh, from, from the 1990s, this was, an, as, this was, this was taken as a given that uh, both uh, you know, emerging powers like China and India took, the economic, uh, global, took economic globalization for granted. It benefited them. 
uh, the, the larger structural environment was such that economic globalization was uh, was became an enabler to their to their growth stories. I think we are now in in a place where some of these assumptions again on on this uh, are being questioned, not simply by Mr. Trump, by, but by other major actors as well. So if you look at European Union, if you look at major developed economies, there are increasing questions about the the, the future of uh, of globalization. Uh, in ways that we have not encountered in the past. And I think that will have an impact on how a country like India looks at it. And, and therefore, a, a lot of this, this contestation, uh, structural contestation, will have an impact on the kind of institutions and norms uh, that we are going to confront with in the coming years. So uh, while the, the, uh, the post-Second World War institutional framework that, that the world had created uh, is coming is coming under stress because of the structural realities that are that are changing. Uh, it, it will impact how countries like India interact with the larger environment. So, uh, so I think the question for for a country like India is how do you how do you shape or how do you respond to this challenge? Uh, as a rising power, uh, you want to be part of the club, but as a as a, as a power, you also want to uh, make sure that the system is not disrupted at a pace. Uh, where you find it you find it difficult to accommodate your interests so i think that is uh, sort of the broader structural argument and and this is you know this is generally well understood uh, and this is generally well um, you know at least in the academic scholarly community this is something that you always use as a benchmark in terms of explaining the large, longer trends in indian foreign policy or, or any country's foreign policy for that matter but i think what is less understood is what is happening at the domestic political level and my argument um, has always been, and, and, uh, and uh, since 2014, that something fundamental has altered in Indian domestic politics. The rise of the centre-right, or the rise of BJP, represents a tectonic shift in Indian, Indian domestic political landscape that inevitably will have its bearing on Indian foreign policy. There was a lot of debate around Modi that whether Modi is changing uh, Indian foreign policy in, in, from 2014 or not. And my argument has been that you have to wait for it. Because if you will not see the impact immediately, but wait for 10 years, and if you look back to 2014, you will see a very, very different foreign policy uh, contours of Indian foreign policy emerging. Because domestic, the way Indian, uh, India's idea of itself has evolved, the way you have uh, new voices and new idioms shaping Indian foreign policy. This is something uh, which we have not encountered with before. Even when you had uh, the BJP government in the past under Atal Bihari Vajpayee, the sense was that that, that that reflected a larger Nehruvian consensus in Indian, in, in Indian uh, politics and in Indian foreign policy. Modi represents a decisive break in that sense from that. The right, this BJP, Modi's BJP is, is different from Vajpayee's Bharatiya Janata Party. And that has to be understood because I think this will have profound consequences for the way we assess uh, India's rise and for the way we assess uh, what changes Modi himself may or may not bring to the table. And along with that, the complete breakdown of the center-left of the Congress version of, of politics. Congress system of politics, because Congress party uh, was not simply a party, it represented an entire ecosystem. And the way that has been demolished and the way it has been dismantled in the last four to five years, and, the, and, and we are seeing that. Uh, it's extraordinary that a party of, of, Congress, of Congress's size and impact is reduced to the numbers that it has in two successive elections. From you know, it, 44 to 52, it's, you know, that's that's what it has come to, and there is complete. Uh, I think the more you look at the numbers, the more you realize 
that there is no single constituency that is that now is responding to Congress Party as uh, you know idea and its worldview, and that will have profound implications for the way we think of uh, you know the way India responds to the international environment because uh, the 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 domestic political architecture plays an extremely important role and the more uh, and the rise of the right which represents I think. Uh, something which is quite interesting, which is uh, you know, which is uh, the rise of the the aspirational class, and that aspirational class has a certain uh, idea about India, which is quite distinct from uh, the uh, the idea which perhaps a sort of entitled elite had for a long time. And uh, uh, Ian mentioned you know this this uh, this very interesting uh, feature in Indian uh, elections this time that it was uh, that the results were unexpected. What is interesting is that the results were, uh, yes, they were unexpected, but the kind of narrative you saw in the English language commentariat was as if Modi was losing momentum, and which was completely out of sync with what was happening in the hinterland. So there was a, there was an, there was an elite writing, uh, providing uh, you know a picture of India, uh, perhaps to itself and to the world which was completely out of sync with what was happening in the hinterland. And this has been happening successively. You look at 2014 where there was a complete lack of understanding of how impactful Modi had been in terms of his outreach, how impactful he was he could possibly be in terms of mobilizing people who support him. Uh, and uh, people were underestimating. There was a, if you go back to 2014, the argument was, well, first he would not, he would not, you know, BJP uh, would never make him the, the face of, uh, of the leadership because he's too controversial. Then the argument became he would never be able to attract allies because he's too controversial. Then the argument became that, oh, he may, you know, yes, uh, you know, he will, uh, he, he's now the face of the BJP, but perhaps he would not win enough seats. And so, and he, he proved all of it wrong. And then once he won those elections, you had very interesting, uh, very major elections of, in, in India, Uttar Pradesh, which is the heartland in India, which, give, which sends the most number of members of parliament to India, and which, is, which, is, which, has which has been considered one of the most powerful states politically. Uh, 2017, uh, in midway through Modi's first term, these elections were held, and again, uh, the, it, the, the argument was that A, um, uh, Modi is lo losing momentum, B, that a coalition of Congress versus a regional party, in, in this case was Samajwadi party, which had relatively young leaders, they, would, they are going to come and they are going to sweep the state, and this was a narrative that, was, that, that, was, that the Indian English language media perpetrated. In the end, Modi and BJP swept UP. Uh, and there was no, but there was no course correction in terms of assessment. So by the time you reached 2019, you saw that happening uh, six or seven months back uh, as the December eight, uh, elections in certain states happened and Congress party won marginally. The idea was, oh, Modi is now gone. He is going to, you know, he's, he's not going to get a, as many seats as, as perhaps uh, he would require. And unless he crosses a certain threshold, it would be very difficult for him to come back to power. He would need allies. They would not back him. And it's... But again, his, the scale and scope of his victory was much, has been extraordinary. So the question, therefore, is that somewhere uh, the, there is an underestimation of what is happening in the hinterland. Somewhere there is an underestimation of what are the issues that are driving certain, piece, certain class of people to, towards Modi. Uh, the, I think, and what is less understood is that the rise of aspirational India means that that India is not looking at, the, at, 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 the, at, at politicians uh, through the lens that was used in the past. So a lot of the, uh, you know, a, a lo 
a lot of the narrative around uh, around uh, Indian domestic politics has been quite uh, uh, quite at odds with what is happening at the ground. And I think this, unless you understand the domestic political shift in terms of uh, the rise of a certain kind of a worldview, uh, I think we, are, we will we will not understand where Indian foreign policy might go in the coming years. And so this aspirational class is uh, is a is a class that wants India to assert itself. It wants India to make an impact on the world. It wants India to play to its strength. And I think this is distinct from a, a class, say, in the, even in the 1990s, that wanted India to uh, sort of uh, to balance out competing claims. It wanted India to uh, look at, uh, you know, to sort of uh, uh, make an argument that, uh, you know, that yes, uh, India, India is rising, but first India need, needed to concentrate on its on its internal development. I think that has shifted. So there is a lot of a uh, lot of uh, these millennials, for example, if you look at their how they how they have voted. Um, if you look at the, the the kind of aspirations they have for India, the aspirations are not simply domestically, but the aspirations are also what kind of a diplomatic footprint India can have. And I think associated with this uh, with this is this. Um, uh, the final point that I want to make in terms of the sources is that the rise of a new um, uh, sort of um, leadership in India. And Modi represents this because in some ways he is the first uh, prime minister born post-independence. So therefore there is a certain, he does not carry some of the baggage perhaps, he does not, uh, and, and he is therefore more in sync with a lot of the youth that is, uh, that is now looking at India. India is a very young country. Uh, and I think uh, if you look at the numbers of, uh, if you look at the data where uh, the, you know, the percentage that is that the poll for Modi, uh, he is. If, if, even if you were comparing him to Rahul Gandhi, uh, he would be. You know, he's not the younger one, but he is getting the younger vote because I think he can. The, the, his language, his his outreach to the youth is much more substantive, and there is this, there is this, uh, there is an argument that he's more in sync with their aspirations. So there's. The old political leadership uh, is, is being challenged. You have a new political leadership. Uh, the, their ideas in India are being uh, taken into account. Uh, what was another interesting facet of these elections was a lot of the dynasts uh, lost, including Rahul Gandhi from his family, uh, from his uh, uh, you know uh, family uh, stronghold of Amiti, which is quite extraordinary. So you you are now looking at 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 uh, you know at at an India that at at a, at a, at a populace that is increasingly questioning. Uh, its political leadership on some, on some of the fundamentals, and so uh, and Modi represents uh, in, to them uh, their best bet. He may not be perfect, but he is better than others. So I think that that is uh, sort of shaping a large part of this uh, of this desire, and he uh, therefore in in some ways when you when you combine the sort of structural change versus the change at the domestic pol political and individual level in India. Uh, you get a sense that Indian foreign policy trajectory uh, would shift in significant ways, and if you are assessing Modi's first term as well, you would find you would you you start making some assessment that there has been a shift. The shift may not be very decisive in the first term, but I think that's the trajectory that you are increasingly looking at. And I would sort of point out a few, um, uh, you know, few um, aspects of this shift uh, which uh, which I sort of understand and which I can deduce and then sort of open this up for, for a broader discussion. I think one of the ways in which, uh, and I think this is important because the first term is largely about, uh, has been about articulating a worldview, is that this, dis this desire to shift the discourse away from non-alignment. That if non-alignment was the larger frame of reference for Indian foreign policy, 
during the Cold War. Then a range of factors uh, are now propelling India into defining its in global engagement in terms that are more than just balancing. And this has been articulated by, by Modi and by his, uh, you know, uh, Ian mentioned Jay Shankar, who is now a foreign minister. This ar argument about leading power, that we, you know, India does not want to be forever balancing power. It wants to be a leading player in the international order. It wants to shape global order. And that, that means that you, you want to proactively engage yourself in the, in the international environment. You want to be part of that engagement. This is, this is contrary to the past where the argument was that, look, you can take a back seat. Why do you want to involve yourself in some of these debates where, uh, when you don't have so much at stake? I think there is a sense, uh, uh, the way uh, Modi has articulated in the, in the first term, and I think that the, uh, you will see a lot of that being uh, actualized or operationalized in the second term, is that you, you see that shift from, from being, uh, you know, uh, from a, this, this perception that India wants to be a leading player, uh, and which, which means that you, uh, India increasingly is redefining non-alignment and st strategic autonomy in terms which are quite distinct. In the past, the argument was that you should not align yourself. Strong partnerships are something that are a, are a big no-no. Because that means that if you are a, if you have strong partnership with America, that would constrain your strategic autonomy. Uh, it, it is the other way around now. If you have partnerships now that enhance your strategic autonomy, if you you want strong partnerships, you want I think the, the best articulation was that India would align on issue basis, so issue based alignments, uh, and I think that is in 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 and of itself an interesting shift in terms of the language that is being used, the discourse that is being. Uh, that is being used to articulate a new role for India, uh, and I think, in some cases, it is it is a bit misunderstood because you you know uh, you, you there, there is an argument that why would um, you know how is it different from non-alignment, uh, but I think it's it's fundamentally a different approach to non-alignment because it allows India to use partnerships to actualize some of the foreign policy outcomes that it wants. Uh, whereas in the past, at least the, the second half of non-alignment was all about moving away from partnerships, moving away from, uh, you know, the idea was that India on its own should be able to deliver rather than if you end up into partnerships, you end up into, you, you end up compromising your strategic autonomy. So I think there has been this discursive shift which, which to me it seems will have significant implications because it will have implications for, uh, for you know, how India... Uh, reaches out to like-minded countries and this is a big debate in India so how, how do you uh, can you um, can you work with uh, with with countries like Japan Australia that are seen as US allies uh, in, in, in in New Delhi in the, in the Indian political consciousness and I think increasingly what we have seen in the last five years that that reticence is gone partnerships as I, as I alluded to in the beginning with Australia has moved to a, to a point where it is very comfortable. There are issues uh, in terms of uh, you know, management of that relationship, but I don't think anyone is questioning the strategic rationale for Indo-Australian alignment or Indo-Japanese alignment, considerable movement on, on these issues, despite the fact that, that, that these are two major US allies uh, in the American system, uh, in, in the Asian order. So I think that, that operationalization of this idea that you need partnerships is not only a reflection of uh, of the structural reality that India faces with the rise of China, but is, it is also a shift in terms of how India visualizes its own role in the in the Asian politics, uh, in the Indo-Pacific politics. The other, uh, I think, element is that uh, that a an acceptance of the fact that India does India has problems when it comes to South Asia, and how do you consolidate leadership role in in South Asia? 
and that has been a you know very very uh, sort of interesting way of framing this uh, in the last few years. So so the argument is that we have to move from Sark to Bimstek. We have to move from the you know, rather than getting obsessed with Pakistan uh, on Sark, South Asian Association for Regional Cooperation. The idea is that you need to move towards Bay of Bengal because Pakistan, in any case, will not uh, you know the the, the the story of Sark has been that it has not worked uh, and uh, the Indo-Pak conflict does not allow it to work. So rather than getting bogged down in that, uh, you need to find creative ways of overcoming this uh, this constraint. And uh, a lot of emphasis has been put on BIMSTEC. Now again, BIMSTEC uh, is, is a Bay of Bengal um, uh, you know, uh, community platform of uh, science and technology, science and technology and economic cooperation. Now this has been this has been in existence since 1999, and no one knew about it. I'm sure Ian and I were not even teaching <laughs> teaching about BIMSTEC <laughs> to our students. But suddenly, in the last uh, last uh, five years, it has gained traction, and, and it has been pushed uh, as as a response to India's problems in South Asia. Uh, and I think, uh, and and the and in the second term when he was being um, uh, his during his swearing in, it was the BIMSTEC leaders that were invited uh, for uh, for the swearing in ceremony. And I think this this sort of uh, this is an attempt to to, uh, to think more creatively about what India can do in the region, what are its equities in the region, in in its neighbourhood that can be preserved. But also, I think in terms in terms of redefining the neighbourhood, that the traditional definition of South Asia does not involve countries like Myanmar and Thailand, which are part of BIMSTEC. But the moment you put BIMSTEC into focus, you are expanding your horizons a bit, you are, you are increasingly pivoting into Southeast Asia and your, your, your argument becomes that you are not only neighbours to countries like Bangladesh and Sri Lanka, you are also neighbours to countries like Myanmar and Thailand, which means that India is a neighbour to Southeast Asia, so this larger Act East policy becomes a bit more um, uh, productive, a bit more um, uh, you know, interesting in some ways. And, and so your seamless, you can, you can make an argument about a seamless connectivity to larger East and Southeast Asia, which I think India has been trying to do for some time. So, so I think that, that idea that you need to consolidate leadership uh, in the neighborhood, uh, this idea uh, is being operationalized or is being actualized through a different interpretation of what neighborhood looks like. Because clearly uh, the, the Western frontier, the Pakistan problem remains where it is and it is not going anywhere. But the issue, therefore, becomes how do you think about regional uh, regionalism? How do you think about regional cooperation in ways that allow you to transcend that problem? And this you know, brings uh, me to the third part, which is uh, Pakistan continues to be a problem. And I think the assessment increasingly in India seems to be that Pakistan will have to be managed uh, you know, by all means. So what is, I think what has been interesting in the last, in the, in the first term, is that multilateral uh, frameworks have been used? So every platform that uh, that Indian leadership got, uh, there was a big talk of, of terrorism, and there was this idea that terrorism is, is a fundamental threat to to India. And the way it was framed was that it, it's it's between uh, you know terrorism and civilization, and therefore state sponsors of terrorism, uh, which clearly the target was Pakistan, need to be isolated. So there was a big massive multilateral effort that was made. Platforms like uh, FATF were used and are still being used, Financial Action Task Force, to isolate Pakistan. They, uh, I think, bilaterally, India engaged, when India engaged with its bilateral partners, the pressure was, uh, the, the focus was on Pakistan's isolation, and that there has been some successes. But what was, what was interesting was the unilateral part of India's Pakistan policy in the, in the first term. Uh, and I think, uh, all governments uh, since 1998 have been grappling with this problem of how do you manage Pakistan under a nuclear umbrella. And 
in 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 the first term, uh, Modi moved the needle on this question by focusing a bit more on the use of force, which was before Modi uh, largely was seen as uh, something that uh, has a because it has strategic consequences. Therefore, it's better for India to absorb the strikes. Uh, so and, and there was a logic to it. If you if you if you go back to the Mumbai terror attacks, uh, it did help India to carve out this narrative of India being a responsible actor versus a, a rogue actor like Pakistan by absorbing those strikes. I think what has happened in the first term of Modi is that force has been has become part now has, has become a part of India's Pakistan policy, uh, and unilateral measures have become uh, are being brought into the policy framework. We don't yet fully understand the uh, the implications of some of these uh, developments because I think after all the two are nuclear neighbors. But what has been um, from a from a from the point of view of looking at Indian foreign policy, what has been interesting is that the argument is that look, Pakistan, you know, tackling Pakistan. If tackling Pakistan is a fundamental problem of uh, is, is 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 a fundamental objective of Indian foreign policy, then you. Your, your policy was getting stuck somewhere, that the, that the only option for India was keep absorbing these strikes uh, and to appeal to the international community to come and intervene or to do something about Pakistan. If India can uh, ma make use of the use of force and see and calibrate that action, perhaps uh, we, can, we can assess uh, you know how this, uh, how the use of force might going to impact uh, the Indo-Pak relationship, and that is, uh, in some ways, I mean, as a, as a student of in international relations, that seems to me to be a response to the structural problem that India faces in the region, rather than anything else. That uh, at some point, and uh, and I think uh, many were often wondering at one at what point India would start rethinking its policy of uh, of restraint. I think there was, uh, under Modi, for, for various reasons, uh, it, it became impossible to sustain that beyond a point. And after, I think, uh, they won the surgical strikes after into 2017, and then the air strikes earlier this year, uh, I think indicate that, that the onus now increasingly would be on Pakistan to de-escalate. And many, I think, in, the, in his administration would say that, well, uh, we have also called Pakistan's nuclear bluff. Uh, so we'll see how that pans out in the, in the in sort of next crisis, whenever and which is likely to happen. Um, but I think the, the assessment is that, uh, the, that there has been a shift, there has been an evolution in India's position. India is no longer stuck uh, at a point where it is, uh, you know, it, it, it continued, continuously has to absorb those strikes. And I think that is an, you know, that is something that would be very interesting to watch. But the larger issue here is that Pakistan. India's Pakistan policy is now viewed as a subset of India's China policy, and therefore a lot of the focus is on uh, how do you reframe or reconfigure your China policy, and not only to manage Pakistan, but because China is such a big part of the larger uh, structural, uh, larger strategic environment that you face. And what uh, I think what we have seen in the last uh, five years uh, is, is something. You know, there is an arc to Modi's China policy. He, uh, in, of course, invited uh, the Chinese president uh, for a personal visit early on in his term, uh, hoping that the Chinese would, would look at uh, him as a, as a leader who has the mandate to deliver and perhaps would be more amenable to some kind of a solution. It did not pan out that way. 
And since then, there has been a gradual hardening of India's position. So Mr. Modi, even when he went to Beijing, he was publicly expressed his grievances with Pakistan. And this was happening for the first time. Uh, Indian leaders generally tend to be reticent, publicly at least, in terms of articulating the problem. And I think Modi's argument was that, you know, while the pomp and circumstance is good, uh, we won't be able to resolve, uh, we won't be able to take the relationship to a new level unless the fundamentals are resolved. And I think uh, that public articulation meant that then um, India had to do certain things. For example, on BRI, India became one of the few first major major country to publicly oppose it. Uh, and uh, you know, and, and it was not simply on the basis of the fact that that the sovereignty issue was under question, but also on, on a lot of normative issues that now all, almost the entire Western world uses the frame of reference of sustainability, of transparency, of uh, lack of local participation, etc. All of these, all of these issues were framed in Indian India's response, which which was the first major response to BRI from a from a major sort of a big country. So in, in that sense, uh, with, with BRI, and then you had Doklam crisis. Now, whatever our assessment of uh, Doklam, uh, uh, you know, whether, whether you know, sort of India, what, what India did or what, how Chinese responded, I think one thing was clear that this was the first, this was one of the most, ser one of the most serious crises that uh, Sino-Indian relations were witnessing in, in almost two decades. And uh, India decided to uh, stand up to the Chinese. Now, uh, this is, uh, you know, despite being a relatively weaker, weaker power and, 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 uh, and despite the fact that, um, uh, you know, that the, that the crisis happened at a tri-junction area with Bhutan. So it was not a Sino-Indian bilateral crisis. It was also a crisis that involved a third country. So India actually uh, was responding on behalf of a third country, uh, close neighbor, uh, but nonetheless a country that, that, that sort of, uh, that demanded a certain kind of a response from India. So what has been, I think, interesting since Doklam is that there has been an attempt at normalizing the relationship, a sense of rapprochement uh, that has emerged in Sino-Indian relations. Wuhan summit is often talked about, uh, informal summit between the Chinese president and Indian prime minister. And There, I, it's Mr. Trump that has been the, the you know that that Mr. Trump is the real factor looming large, I think, in some ways, because what uh, Mr. Trump gave India and China, uh, he gave them, he has given them a chance to talk about something that is not conflictual. So it is it's the economic sort of trade. Uh, dispute, trade argument, the, the, the threats to economic globalization that allows India and China to say that, look, we look at the world through a similar lens on this issue, we can perhaps coordinate our response to what Mr. Trump is doing to the, to the global economic order. And that is, uh, you know, uh, it's, it's, it's difficult, as, as, a, as a student of Sino-Indian relations, it's difficult to see that as more than a tactical, uh, uh, you know, maneuvering around, uh, around uh, an issue that, that is of immediate relevance. Uh, because the fundamentals of the relationship still remain where they are. There has been no shift uh, uh, whatsoever in any of the fundamental problems that Sino-Indian relations uh, are facing. Um, but it is, I think, uh, it is an indicator that perhaps you will see some kind of uh, a normalization of this relationship at least for the next few years till the time trade issues tend to be 
very very prominent uh, from uh, both India and Pakistan, uh, from from for both India and China, vis-a-vis uh, -vis the U.S. Uh, and uh, and I think that is, is you know uh, that is an issue perhaps which which all the states in the region are grappling with. How do you manage Mr. Trump's sort of turbulence uh, at, at a time of China's uh, rise? Um, but I think beyond that, there has been some interesting developments in the neighborhood. So South Asia and Indian Ocean region, where you have the smaller states, they have been competing for influence. Uh, China and India have been competing for influence. And uh, you know there have been episodes where China seemingly won. There have been episodes where India came back. Uh, so you have the recent elections in Maldives, where, um, uh, where Indian pro-India faction has been back in power, has come back to power. There have been elections in Sri Lanka, where um, you know, pro-China uh, factor, pro-Chinese faction lost, and then what is what is interesting in this is that uh, a uh, that the smaller states are now uh, I, I think they have greater agency than any time before that I've seen. Uh, that they are uh, I think they are they they are using this to their advantage, which they should. Uh, and I think the other aspect is is that under Modi, India has been a bit bolder in publicly articulating uh, its red lines. Uh, and it has had some negative consequences, for example, in Nepal, where the where a seeming blockade uh, gave India a, a lot of uh, bad publicity. Uh, it, has, it has had some uh, successes, for example, in Maldives and in Sri Lanka, where India did make its red lines very clear, and the government had to come back and make, make a reassessment. But I think what has happened is that India is now increasingly willing to argue that uh, and that India will challenge China on some of these issues. So, uh, but it, given the disparity between the two, I think it's still finding it difficult uh, to to manage it. And I, interestingly, very recently there has been a deal with uh, with uh, in Sri Lanka with the Japanese, and I think that's going to be the model uh, that you use third parties to uh, to enter into these states uh, and help um, build in, whether you want infrastructure development or connectivity, or even on trade and security. Which I think, uh, fine, you know, just final two points about uh, the issue of Indo-Pacific, and, and I think one of the areas where um, uh, where there has been a, which has been articulated very very categorically is the sense of that India now, perhaps more than ever before, publicly acknowledges uh, the uh, the centrality of Indo-Pacific uh, discourse and conceptualization to its own engagement with its neighborhood. Uh, I think uh, there, has been, there was some reluctance before, but in very, very recently we have seen um, a new center in the Ministry of External Affairs, for example, uh, Center for the Indo-Pacific coming up, where uh, a joint secretary level um, uh, diplomat is now handling um, India's Indo-Pacific engagements. And the movement on issues like Quad, on trilateral and bilateral uh, uh, cooperation with countries of, from uh, Japan, US, uh, Australia, uh, to individual countries of Southeast Asia, as well as to articulating that Southeast Asia is going to be central to India's engagement in the Indo-Pacific. Modi's uh, speech at the Shangri-La Dialogue last year was uh, tried to define Indo-Pacific in very, very expansive terms. Uh, Again, there are differences here. Uh, Australia and U.S. define Indo-Pacific uh, distinct, uh, differently compared to India. Uh, India's definition 
expands from the eastern shores of Africa to the Pacific, whereas I think Australia and America, uh, American definitions are primarily from the Indian subcontinent to the, to the Pacific. Uh, but I think that India's, uh, India's argument is that you cannot really, I mean, given India's equities in the Middle East uh, and on the Western frontier and, uh, you know, and the people-to-people -people links that India has with the eastern shores of Africa, uh, I think that is, a, that is something that India does take seriously and would like to... Um, engage with. But, but the larger point here is that what we have seen in the last four years is that an acceptance that working with like-minded countries in the Indo-Pacific is the only way uh, to shape a favorable balance of power uh, to India's advantage. Uh, finally, I mean, I, I would just make a point about, um, about foreign policy uh, as, as, you know, under Modi has been, I think, more than, more than other administrations and because how powerful Modi himself is, is that foreign policy uh, has, you know, if you look carefully in terms of how India has handled certain crises and how India has managed foreign policy in the last four to five years, uh, there has been a more whole of the government approach to Indian foreign policy. So there is, while there has been no uh, fundamental institutional, uh, you know, restructuring of the system, because of uh, how uh, Modi uh, how powerful Mr. Modi himself is, uh, he has been able to give a push to this idea that, look, you have to look at foreign policy primarily as a means of domestic transformation. And if you look at foreign policy through that prism, then all the other silos, all the other uh, agencies need to come together. Uh, and I think that has been um, quite, um, quite interesting to watch, given that you, at, at one point, um, there, there have been these debates of some very powerful ministers, a very powerful national security advisor, uh, even a, Mr. Jayashankar when he was foreign secretary, very powerful foreign secretary. But there have been less of, uh, of, uh, of the personality clashes that have come out in the open. I think uh, Modi has been able to uh, mobilize them more effectively than other prime ministers uh, in terms of giving a sense of direction and purpose to their activities. Which, given the strong personalities that they are in their own right, has would have been quite difficult in any other administration. So I think when you are looking at this, this first of all, this institutional framework, it, no, nothing fundamental has, has has changed. But what has changed is that, given the unique uh, sort of hierarchy that we have in the in the system, there is a whole of the government approach to this, which, which seemingly comes out. The other is. Uh, all the instrumentalities of power are being brought into into the mix. So, uh, you know, whether it is the military, you know, so, so there is the military is of course important. The, the hard power element is important because it has been it is being woven gradually more carefully into the matrix. Uh, so, uh, you know, we, I talked about Pakistan, but there is also an element of defense diplomacy where uh, where India is engaging more and more with, the, with with port calls, with military exercises, naval exercises with, 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 within the region. But there is also the soft power element, which I think. Um, is uh, is often um, um, neglected in, in has been neglected in India and, and the kind of arguments that India has made are very very interesting. Um, so I mean today is the yoga day I think twenty first twenty first yes yes um, I'm very surprised you're not doing anything. <laughs> <laughs> it's to come yes. Um, so um, I mean he Modi made this yoga day into you know this big. Uh, Jamboree about how, how India wanted to project um, its, its soft power across the world. He mobilized uh, almost 160 odd countries supported his endeavor. Um, but there have been other elements. Uh, you know, the, this whole idea of Southeast Asia 
and the way he has sort of tried to define India's engagement in Southeast Asia, where uh, culture has become very important, civilizational you know, um, impact. And I think uh, there has been, an, you know, the, the sense is that uh, because China is so powerful when it comes to commerce and trade and, 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 and economics, uh, you need a different frame to, to reach out to, uh, to certain parts of the world. And culture has become one way in which uh, he has tried to sort of engage Indian Ocean uh, and Southeast Asian countries, which is, uh, again, uh, 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 sort of an um, effort um, where you, you want to think of uh, soft power as, as, as one, uh, one piece of the puzzle. Similarly, his outreach to the diaspora has been very, very significant. Uh, you know, he, he, make, he has made diaspora very, very central to his vision of, of, engage, of engagement with, the, uh, with foreign policy. So, it, so I think the, the multiples, uh, you know, bringing in hard and soft power, bringing in this idea that you know, whether it's commerce ministry, foreign ministry, defense ministry, you have to work as an integrated whole with the National Security Council. These are relatively uh, interesting uh, ways of framing foreign policy for India in, in the last few years. These have been relatively interesting ways. Uh, I mean, at, at this point, it's not uh, it's not in readily evident that they will have a lasting impact beyond Modi, um, because it you know as, as, and this is I think the last part of, of what I wanted to say was that if you look at the challenge that India faces, I think the challenge is how do you uh, institutionalize a lot of these shifts, and whether uh, Mr. Modi will have the bandwidth to institutionalize them in the second term, I think remains a big question. You need, uh, I mean, India needs serious defense reforms. India needs serious bureaucratic reforms. Uh, I mean, even the ministry, MEA, we all know, I mean, those who study it know that it's, a, it's very small. Uh, it's, you know, the ambitions are growing, but the institutional infrastructure is not growing. So can you bring, bring the two in sync with each other? But I think um, this, the, the, the Enhancing India's capacities and capabilities uh, is going to be this, uh, you know, perhaps Mr. Modi's foreign policy at the end of the day will be judged by how, how effective he becomes in shaping that, uh, you know, shaping, in shaping that uh, part of his foreign policy vision. Uh, where he is very good or where, where he has been very effective in terms of taking foreign policy to ordinary Indians. Uh, I think his connect with the Indians uh, mean that, that he can explain certain things and bring foreign policy and make foreign policy uh, a discussion point uh, about Indian, India's developmental priorities. So he has been able to articulate that. He has been able to articulate a very ambitious vision for India. Uh, I, I mean, the, the challenge remains in the realm of institutions. The challenge remains in the realm of how, can he, how effectively uh, or what kind of a legacy he wants to leave beyond his term. Where uh, a lot of these issues can get can you know can get marginalized, can get sidelined if they are not if, if they if they do not become part of the institutional fabric uh, of, of, of the political bureaucratic establishment. I think I would end. Thank you so much. Thank you very much, Harsh. That's a sort of characteristically. Uh, masterful survey and sort of thing that we've come to, to know that you do. Um, I, I'm, like, I'm personally very interested in this connection between the domestic and the foreign. And there was, there's a wonderful ABC, Australian Broadcasting Corporation, correspondent in India at the moment called Siobhan Hinu. And 
At one point during the election campaign, she goes out and she interviewed someone. She found, you know, the, the you know the paradigmatic um, had me, the common man, right? And he finds this guy, and he looks exactly like you would expect the um, had me to be. And she says to him, "What do you think about Modi?" And his reply was, "Modi has made me feel like we are respected, that I'm proud to be an Indian." And it picks up on the things that Modi's talked about in Independence Day speeches and so on about the power of the Indian passport. There's one speech where he says. You know, when, when someone pulls out an Indian passport and hands it over to the immigration officer, they see a powerful passport, a respected passport. They see somebody who's a success. This kind of connection is really, really, really fascinating, the way in which Modi has managed to tap into this. But anyway, so um, I'll throw this open to questions uh, and comments and, and so on. So, um, yeah, be kind. Thank you very much for such a fantastic presentation. I was curious, like, I wanted to hear a bit more from you about Modi's handling of Pakistan and its role in his re-election. Uh, you also uh, said that Modi's focus on being state uh, instead of Sark was indicative of his redefining uh, the focus of geography. Uh, or, uh, we need to, you say that we need to see it in a different perspective. Uh, what I think is, like Modi's focus on Bhima State is, was uh, intended at alienating Pakistan instead of like focusing on the, I mean, extending its influence over the Southeast Asia or something like that. So, uh, on that perspective, what, what, what do you think about the future of SARC? Uh, and also, uh, final question. Uh, do you think uh, selection of H. Jaisankar as the Foreign Minister of India has something to say about uh, his uh, focus, uh, his, like, how, how does he want to do something differently in India's foreign policy? Thank you. Okay, do you want to take yeah, one first and then we can, we might gather more as it is channel. But yeah, go ahead. Uh, well, I think uh, Jay Shankar, uh, let's start from the reverse order. Jay Shankar um, has been one of his closest advisors in the first term. So clearly uh, there is a level of comfort there. I think, uh, I think there was a lot of expectation that Jay Shankar would, become, would get something uh, in the cabinet. No one expected him to be, to be made the minister. Uh, which is quite uh, quite extraordinary, given that he does not he's not you know, he's not a formal member of the BJP, uh, and it's a traditionally it has been a very uh, you know, a senior political member gets that kind of a position. But I think uh, one uh, that uh, I mean clearly Modi likes bureaucrats, so he likes effective bureaucrats who can deliver, and I think Jay Shankar has been one of uh, one of in the most articulate foreign policy diplomats as far as India is concerned. He has been able to articulate a role for India in, in global platforms. And he's also slightly different from a traditional Indian bureaucrat in the sense that if you, if you read him carefully, if you listen to what he says carefully, uh, he often, um, you know, he's very nimble. He's, he's again, uh, I think in some ways, um, this articulation of India's role, where India is unburdened by the legacy of non-alignment and part, you know, and and why India needs partnerships, a more realistic agenda in Indian foreign policy, has been Jaishankar's theme for quite some time. So it seems to me that uh, that uh, he would fit in very well with with uh, with Modi's own vision of where he wants to take India. But also, uh, you know, if you look at, you know, if 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 I were sitting today and mapping out. Six, at least for a year, what are the going to be challenges? If you are if, if you're following Indian India today, you, you look at the challenges, and, and America is such a big part of the challenge um, with trade, with S400, uh, you 
know, dispute with the vis-a-vis -vis the Russians and with the Iran issue on the table. I think uh, you need some. I mean, he, I, he needed someone perhaps who could always or who could also be amenable to um, to a bit of transactionalism. And in India, that's a bad word, you know. When you, whenever you say transaction, you know, which Trump uses, but all diplomacy is about transactions. You know, you give and take. I mean, and and there have been many in India who uh, who have been uh, sort of very averse to this idea of, of you know what Mr. Trump is saying somehow is, is an assault on their senses. But if you are pragmatic, which I mean, if you think of what the Chinese are doing with with, with Trump, they are they are negotiating with, with 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 Washington. So at the end of the day, you want a deal. Uh, you know, he wants a deal with uh, with India, but perhaps you also want to deal because you don't want this to. Be. So I think, uh, in, in that sense, uh, Jayashankar is very uh, is positioned uniquely. He understands America very well. Uh, he has been there, uh, you know, as, as posting as the as the ambassador, uh, and uh, he perhaps, given his own take on on America, uh, should be. I think that must have been one part of the calculus that he should be able to deliver on this. So I think there are there are multiple reasons, but I think what what largely Jayashankar means for for Indian foreign policy uh, is that uh, it would be uh, it would be more pragmatic, it would be more uh, in some ways more ambitious, and it would be more realistic in terms of what India perhaps wants to achieve in the coming years. Uh, Pakistan, uh, you know, um, in, in I mean. Pakistan did play a role in Indian elections, at least in the first half. I mean, Indian elections, they, they staggered for one and a half months. So no single issue dominated all the five or six phases that India had. But clearly, first two phases, because they came immediately after what happened in, 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 in Balakot, um, uh, clearly there was a national security uh, impetus to the engagement and to the discourse. And that, uh, that and clearly that helped Mr. Modi, because I think he was able to articulate much more Coherently, and given that you are in the, you know, governments uh, clearly have an advantage when it comes to national security if you are able to demonstrate that you are delivering on that. Uh, but I think Modi's Pakistan policy again has 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 been, you know, if 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 you were looking at it from the outside, uh, it's not very difficult to understand. So you know, he started off in 2014. He invited Nawaz Sharif along with other SAC members. And the, again, the expectation was that, look, uh, Nawaz Sharif uh, also at that point in time had a very substantive mandate in, in, in Pakistani parliament. Uh, India, uh, Modi was coming with a very substantive mandate. The expectation was here are two strong leaders. They, would, they should be able to get something out. Uh, but, it, it, you know, uh, in a matter of, uh, of uh, months, uh, you know, sort of it, 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 it was demolished, and despite that, Modi himself made this personal trip to Lahore to visit uh, Nawaz Sharif during his daughter's election, daughter's wedding. So there was, but nothing worked. And then you had the terror attacks, and I think what what that meant was somewhere uh, Modi felt that, uh, or Modi would have felt that, look, you are now uh, in this, you are falling back into this mode where, you know, this the cycle is repeating itself. You know, you reach out, then something happens, you back off, and I think since then there has been a, there has been a consistent approach that no, there will be no talks, um, there will be uh, you know sort of no outreach to to Pakistan, and uh, India would go all out in margin in trying to isolate Pakistan, and that has been consistent since then. Even uh, after his elections, when um, Imran Khan called, 
uh, he said, thank you, but I, you know, I can't, you know, at this point I can't do much. So you have, I think the argument is that you need to show something substantive is happening on the ground for India to then reach out to you and, and start the dialogue process again. I think that 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 has been uh, sort of consistent, and I, I and I think BIMSTEC is yes part of it is about isolating Pakistan, which is how again how do you uh, how do you want to transcend the problem of Pakistan because because uh, with Pakistan you know it's it's the narrative is that look South there's no hope for South Asia because India Pakistan don't get along um, so SAR could not work so nothing else would work and uh, you know engagement would not work and so uh, South Asia as a whole. Uh, would. And I think that has been that has had its problems because you had then other lead other neighbors of India who have often complained as to you know yes there is a problem between India and Pakistan but clearly the, you know India also has other neighbors that can benefit from uh, greater regional integration greater regional engagement and I think uh, the attempt with BIMSTEC is that somehow to shift the focus away from the west to the east and see whether great more can be done with Nepal Bangladesh Sri Lanka and Bhutan also with Myanmar and Thailand you bring them into the mix and so that there becomes a bigger block uh, which and that also allows India yes, you know, some space in Southeast Asian discourse. Uh, and in personal assessment are you still hopeful about SAR? Personally I, I've, I've never been hopeful of SAR you know, it's, it's been it's, you know, because it's what I mean, I, I think something needs to give. Either, either, uh, either Pakistan fundamentally alters its attitude towards India, uh, or towards regional integration, or India makes an assessment that, irrespective of what Pakistan is doing, uh, you know, we have to sort of look at regional integration as a greater good, and therefore we will absorb the costs. Uh, and but that's, I think, in a democracy, that's not politically feasible. So you have that problem of that hanging in the So I, I, I very much doubt if, if there is any potential uh, at this point. Thank you. Uh, assuming that the, India's, the strength of India's foreign policy is going to depend a lot on its, on its domestic economy, what is Modi doing to increase the hard and soft infrastructure in India to, to develop the economy? I mean, in many ways, they're way behind China. In other ways, I think intellectually, in terms of English language and things like that, they're very, they're, they're, they're ahead. But in terms of infrastructure and so on, they're, they're way behind. What's, what's Modi doing to, to, uh, to build this? I mean, I, I would say even intellectually, I think we have fallen behind. You know, our universities, our education system has, has fallen so far behind in terms of uh, the requirements of the 21st century that, um, you know, that we have a very, very, very uh, sort of a steep climb ahead and I would say, I would say that um, I would rank even you know, the, the, the soft aspects much more. The, the decline is much steeper. You know, you can you can still go to India and find good roads now up, uh, being built, uh, infrastructure being built, but you do not see that energy in the in the education sector. You don't see that energy in, in how our both primary as well as higher education systems are being reformed. Partly because I think. That's, that has not been a priority for successive governments, and partly also because they have been so politi politicized. Education has been so politicized that it's incredibly difficult uh, to to sh shift that in, you know, in, a, in a short period. Uh, but uh, you know, but I think what has uh, what uh, you know when you talk of, for example, infrastructure. I think infrastructure and, and other areas, hard infrastructure. Uh, there clearly there is a recognition uh, that you know that. 
that is very very significant if if the second phase of india's growth story next phase of india's growth story is to be realized and i think the gov- this government has been relatively good if you look at the numbers they have built more roads in the last 5 years they have done a lot of infrastructure development so there has been a lot of focus on that uh, the the issue i think with the economy uh, the larger ec- uh, economy is that the international environment is turning against india and and international environment is becoming less conducive uh, to the kind of growth rates that india and china experience at one point in time and in fact just if you just look at china china's growth rate decline means that everyone else is going to be affected so there is clearly a, you know a cascading effect emerging out of uh, what is what is happening in in china but uh, so 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 there is a, there is a problem in terms of how you um, how you look how, how where is the next phase of growth going to come from for india if the international environment is largely negative if the international uh, headwinds are largely negative and i think there uh, the emphasis has been more on public sector investment so government has increased spending at a number of levels uh, both in terms of where they want to see uh, india's infrastructure development go but also in terms of india's financial sector uh, and there is a lot that can be done but that won't in and of itself be enough to to, to get you to the kind of rate rates of growth that india has been having in the last 7 8 9% it's a, it's a big number and in this environment it's very difficult uh, so i think economy is going to be a big challenge because it also uh, it also relates to how do you provide employment to this incredibly young population uh, and as i said that is also demanding results so uh, you know from the from the policy makers it's a, you know the, the the younger generation that is now being brought into into the electoral frame every year Uh, that is also a generation which is which is aspirational, which which I think has helped Mr. Modi, but it can also turn against you very quickly. And I thought so. The challenge, therefore, is how do you how do you manage their expectations because they are in, they they want um, jobs, and uh, I think jobs are not that are not going to be that easy uh, in this day and age of fourth industrial revolution when we are talking of how um, you know the next generation of technology is going to shape our economies. so i think uh, the uh, the assessment is clearly there that the challenges are going to be huge uh, i think the focus on domestic infrastructure in the last 5 years gives you an idea that he and his government will continue to focus on infrastructure development they have some interesting ideas for example around what to do with india's uh, waterways uh, what to do within you know how do you think of uh, Uh, the transport uh, sector in the country uh, and but there is also this this issue of what do you do with certain politically sensitive uh, economic reforms so everyone has been talking about these big bang reforms that india needs uh, and uh, modi has been more careful than many had expected him to be in the first term he is not he has not turned out to be a, a typical uh, center right politician on the economic front Uh, he has been very careful i think his his approach has been more micro targeting of policies than macro uh, um, uh, you know policy issues i think one big issue for india is going to be how whether you move forward with public sector disinvestment loss making disinvestment public loss making public sector units uh, and again that is so politically contentious but the question there many many would ask is if not modi then who 
this is a once in a lifetime opportunity for India to, to push on a, on, a, on a lot of these issues because you have a very strong political mandate uh, and you may not get that kind of mandate again. He may not get it, his successors may not get it. So I think the question is, if he's not going to deliver on, uh, on these tough issues, which are politically tough, uh, then uh, can anyone deliver? And I think uh, that is where we'll have to wait and watch. I don't know the answer because I think he's, um, he's a good politician. He understands you know, which buttons to push to win the next election. I think we, uh, we still don't know how effective or ineffective at the end of 10 years when we look back and when, you know, when we assess him as a, in terms of his governance, uh, how we are going to assess him. I think five years, given the complexity, given the challenge that he faced, is, I would argue is not the right sort of a frame to judge him in terms of governance. But 10 years, you can look back and say, well, uh, he did falter on certain issues. So, so I mean, he, I mean what, what, what we are now hearing is that he has asked all his ministries to come up with a 100-day agenda and he wants to deliver on that. So it would be interesting to see what that 100-day agenda means and you know, what, what sort of issues he is sort of willing to push on. Um, but at this point, it's, it's all very vague because he, when he when he's campaigning, he can be everything to everyone. But when you are governing, you, you have to be a bit different. So we will see. Thank you. Well, we've got time for probably one or two more questions. Uh, Colin. Thank you very much. Um, I take your point that politics is largely about transactions and deal-making and so on. But I presume that isn't the entirety of Modi's approach to politics. So I'd like to ask you, what are the ideas or the ideologies which have shaped his view of India and its place in the world? What does he cite as being the basis of, of the deals that he does, the transactions that he undertakes? Yeah, I mean, the... the, the the argument about transactionism was largely uh, relative to, uh, related to Mr. Trump because he, he believes in transaction. He, so, so therefore, I mean, there's an element there. I think, um, you know, Modi is, uh, I mean, his whole life he has been uh, a part of what uh, an organization called Rashtriya Swayam Seva says. So he's, he has been an RSS Pracharak all his life. And their idea of India is... Uh, is quite distinct from, from the Nehruvian version, although it has evolved. I mean, one must acknowledge the evolution. Um, I think in, in some ways he does look at India as a traditional, uh, you know, that India at one point in world's history was a global leader. And I think he, he puts a lot of emphasis on India being this leader in, in other areas as well, but most primarily in, uh, in, in the knowledge. He uses the term Vishwaguru. Um, global uh, leader in, in terms of knowledge transmission. And I think uh, that in some ways is going to be, uh, has been uh, has been central to how he views a lot of, you know, how he maps out India's role in the world. Uh, that India, India needs to reach back to that, to that position in some ways and, and starts and start shedding light on a number of these global issues. So therefore, for him, it's, it's, you know, going back to that would be a would be uh, a natural corollary to India's rise. That this is that was something that that, in, that that India was, and that is that is where India belongs to. So, so the larger idea I think that animates him in some ways is this idea of India uh, as, a, as a global leader, and that's why his his conceptualization of India as a leading power in the international system. 
not as, as one that is often balancing out competing interests, but one that is shaping the global order. So he wants, I think that, that proactive engagement that he wants India uh, to do with the world, to make, to have with the world, is I think a part of his sensibility and, the, and, and at, at times uh, I think you know his confidence uh, that, that that you sort of uh, seen him is, is reflective of that that he he thinks that this is you know the fact that uh, you know he is being uh, that he's he he being approached by the wider world leaders is merely uh, merely underscores the fact that India is so important in the world hierarchy that it is inevitable or it should have been inevitable so I think some of some of those ideas will take time because to percolate to the to the sort of operational level but largely at the discursive level I think he has been very successful in terms of saying that look as you mentioning that look uh, India today is respected you know he has this this thing about uh, how under his predecessor India lost some of that edge and that India was seen uh, as part of the weak five countries in the world that India was seen as symbolic uh, economically not not being able to put its house in order so a lot of it is about uh, and therefore I, I think there is a sense of comfort with bureaucracy because he feels that bureaucracy is critical in putting these pieces pieces in place and that would you know sort of make India the engine of global uh, growth global uh, power global sort of uh, knowledge architecture I, I mean there are all kinds of issues questions around whether you know around whether he will be able to accomplish that or whether that would be a challenge going forward but i think fundamentally he does uh, he does feel that the natural role that india had at one point in time was uh, you know was got dissipated because indian leadership was too weak or too incoherent to sort of tap into that and i think that's where he wants to take india uh, can I ask one supplementary very quickly? Does the great Indian past include the Muslim Indian past? Depends on who you ask. Well, I'm asking that. <laughs> That's the point. Well, uh, I think he would, I mean, he goes, I mean, his definition of the Hindu past or how he defines, he would define Hindu past would be way back before the Mughals. So it won't, you know, so, in a sense, his argument, or he, you know, where he where he comes from, and the argument that, for example, RSS makes, is that uh, if you look at Indian Muslims, they are not Indian Muslims; they are Indian Hindus traditionally. I mean, they are they belong to this cultural civilization that was always, uh, you know, that that pre that always prevailed, whether it was Mughals, whether it was the British, or even before. So, there is a cultural continuity to India that that is unique. That is that is beyond the sort of time and space uh, through which we look at the, you know the geographical construct of India. So I mean, he, in terms of argument, he would say yes. Uh, they they uh, you had Indian uh, you know India invaded by invaders. They came to India and became Indians. So that was that would be the logical argument that he would make. Okay, I think we better wrap up. Although I think we could probably go on 
uh, for, for some time. So we started with Modi, we've ended up in the, in the Vedic period. Yes, yes. Um, <laughs> and I know you have to go off, you've got a meeting with Australia's own Vishwaguru, Raghiz, um, to go to. So look, it, uh, it falls to me just to, to offer my thanks uh, personally, but um, Caitlin has got some, some tokens of gratitude as well. Yeah, so uh, Caitlin, over to you. Hash, thank you so much. Um, you've covered enormous ground for us today, and I think it's really fantastic to see so much an emerging you know, we've got a lot of interest in um, the study of India, but we now have a, a platform with the Indo-Pacific really to talk not just about the study of each other, but how we work together in the future. And that's something I think is a really interesting, exciting space for us. We're looking forward to hosting you again in August. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so <laughs> this is a little taste of what is to come, and I'd like to just pass on a couple of things for you for Praga and also for Jack. Thank you also for accompanying Hush here today. Um, just a couple of tokens from us of appreciation. A few things to read. Oh, thank you very much. Because I'm you. sure you haven't got enough. <laughs> but thank you very much.